0: Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations, with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve.
1: Welcome to a special edition of the Spy Talk podcast. I'm Jeff Stein. My guest today is Mark Polymaropoulos, a 28-year veteran of the CIA's clandestine services directorate. Much of Marx's career was spent in the Middle East, where he not only conducted highly classified counter-terror missions, but cultivated close relationships over the years with princes, kings, prime ministers, and tribal leaders across the region. Those relationships are key to helping the U.S. successfully navigate between the dangerous shoals of Middle East politics. Alas, he says... The CIA no longer prizes such regional expertise and experience, opting instead for developing generalists among its spy corps, skilled operators who can be and are being constantly shifted among regions. One year is a tour in the Middle East. Two years later, it's China, Africa, or Latin America. That's no way to run a railroad or a spy service, he says. In our interview, which was conducted last month before Israel and Hamas erupted in a tragic new round of fighting, he lamented the passing of Charlie Seidel, whom he called the CIA's last great Arabist. Mark, you're a 26 year veteran of the CIA, mostly in the operations division and mostly in the Middle East and South Asia. Recently, you wrote a piece that lamented the death of Charlie Seidel, who you called the last great Arabist. That's uh, pretty troubling. It sounds ominous, like the CIA no longer has someone devoted to understanding the culture and speaking the languages, particularly Arabic. So can you explain that?
0: Sure. Well, well. first and foremost, I wrote it to, to honor Charlie Seidel, who was a mentor of mine. Um, you know, he was one of the, the great CIA officers, you know, uh, of, of, of his time. He was a titan in the Middle East. I mean, I, when, I, when I talk about, you know, his ability to kind of walk through the capitals and the palaces of, of the region and relate to not only the kings and prime ministers and queens, but also the street sweeper. I mean, he was he was really a, a tremendous figure. Um, but I call him the last great American Arabist because I think we have lost this level of expertise. And there's a variety of reasons for it. Um, but, uh, but, but first and foremost, I did it really to, to honor a man who, uh, you know, he left the agency not on great terms. And, and I think it's high time that he, you know, he get a lot of praise.
1: Well, how can it be that we have lost expertise on the Middle East at his degree after so many years, decades now, fighting in the middle east
0: so well there's a couple things well you know first you know it's it's the the system that we have created and there's good reasons for this and we can talk about it um is is kind of a move away from that that regional expert in which you spent you know your entire career overseas charlie actually never served at headquarters which is pretty remarkable Mm -hmm. um but for for reasons and some of them there you know there's there's some some backing to this is that we moved away from uh, you know, having officers, uh, uh, men and women who spent their career in one area, and they, we moved to kind of more of a generalist profile in which, you know, you were supposed to go out overseas, you come back, you do some headquarters time to learn about Washington, learn about the intelligence community, learn about, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the managing the bureaucracy back in Washington, and then perhaps you go to other regions of the world. And, and frankly, it's not only the CIA that's done this; the State Department has this model as well. I was talking to a former ambassador, in fact, this morning. And he was lamenting the same thing, that the State Department has moved away from that. Um, and so I think that with, uh, uh, with Bill Burns uh, set to be, uh, be hopefully confirmed next week as the next CIA director, if Ted Cruz ever lifts the hole, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, but, but this is something that Bill Burns, I think, should take a look at. You know, can we go back to really having these, these regional experts? Um, uh, because you know, for a variety of reasons, one for, for the expertise that is required, but also what an ambassador to the Middle East, Charlie, was. You know, I, I talk about all the time that, you know, not only was he smart, not only did he advise, you know, numerous CIA directors and, and, and uh, uh, State Department personnel, as well as U.S. presidents, but also he was an ambassador to the region. The Arab world loved him because he loved the Arab world and he understood them. And, uh, and we've, I think we've lost that a bit.
1: Well, that's, that's, that sounds terrible to me. Um, it seems to me an intelligence officer needs to an effective intelligence officer in the field where you're recruiting agents, people to spy locals to give us secrets that we need to know to protect ourselves that you need to know the language you need to know the culture but let's let's just back up a step what does it mean
0: to be an arabist explain that in plain words Sure so you know I think you know, this is—it's a—it's a really interesting term. I think Robert Kaplan wrote a book several, you know, many many years ago called "The Arabist." When he talked about, it was really focused more on State Department. But but there's a long line of Arabists in the CIA as well. I was actually worried that the article I wrote recently would offend some State folks, but I think they understood that I was talking about CIA personnel. But look, an Arabist is someone who has incredible knowledge of not only language, and you know, you can go through a two-year Arabic program. We have a lot of Arabic speakers. That's not really what I'm talking about as much. Um, But I'm talking about those who understand the culture, but who also have had time on the ground and built those relationships. You have to remember in the Middle East, uh, 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 Middle Eastern intelligence services, their personnel never change. (laughs) You know, Middle Eastern governments. This is not, you know, uh, uh, administrations that come and go, presidents that come and go. And every four years they switch up, um, you know, the national security apparatuses like we do in our country in the middle east everybody stays the same and so if you build those relationships over 5 10 15 20 years that's an incredible you know uh, 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 you know knowledge base you have a rolodex mm-hmm. you have uh, because when when you know push comes to shove and problems need to be solved in the region you have to turn to individuals such as Charlie Seidel who could go quietly to riyadh to cairo to amman um, talk to the leadership work things out uh, and and you know by not having that, you know we certainly we lose a tool in our in our toolbox.
1: And you can't pick that up in a short period of time. I I've often said that after studying Vietnamese intensively for a year and then running an operation on the ground in Vietnam for a year, that I didn't really understand the country until about the day I left. I mean, you, it, you, you, it takes years to get this understanding, and it's it's incomprehensible to me how someone can be an effective intelligence officer over a period of years without
0: understanding the
1: culture and the language.
0: Well, that's right. And so it's, it's culture, it's language. Um, it's, it's also serving in different parts of the Arab world. The Gulf is different than the Levant, is different than North Africa. And so you kind of build up that expertise, you build up those ties. You know, I'll never forget. And, and let me just say, you know, I, and I, I have a lot of, you know, I say this very humbly. I was not a Charlie Seidel. My Arabic was pretty lousy. I spent some time in the region. But I do remember times where we would have a trilateral meeting of, of intelligence services. And I won't even say which services they were. But I but I knew everybody in the room. I knew, you know, it was, it was the United States and two other uh, uh, Middle Eastern services. And just having that foundation of trust. Now, again, we're going to have substantive differences um, our policies probably will be, will be different, but you have that trust. And I think, again, that's based on, on, on time on the ground. Charlie Seidel's funeral um, several years ago was extraordinary. It was held in Fairfax, Virginia. It was like walking into a Star Wars bar of the Middle East with uh, officials from the Arab world, from the U.S. military, from the intelligence community, from the Department of State, who kind of all gathered together to celebrate this man who had such you know, such a profound effect um, on everybody, in, in in their own kind of personal way, I tell a story about I came when I came back from from Iraq. We were together in Iraq within the invasion in in 2003, and I came back and I wasn't well. I had a pretty pretty serious case of post traumatic stress uh, uh, disorder, PTSD. And I called Charlie up and I said, I'm not doing so great. I'm waking up with nightmares. I see dead bodies. And he said, All right, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna gather the whole team together at his you know at, in, at his cottage in Cape Cod. And so we did and so all of us who were on that original team went for and he said we're going to go for two weeks and he arranged for everyone to have rental properties and we sat around and ate lobsters and drank beer and went and our families were all with us he got it he understood that that you know this was this was you know the agency was a family and he wanted to take care of all of us um and so he really had just that that kind of unique ability to to relate to to his officers as well those who were under his command
1: i'm talking with mark Polymeropoulos a 28year veteran of the CIA's clandestine services Directorate much of it spent in the Middle East you write in that uh, piece that Charlie was not treated uh, well at the end of his career at CIA tell us what happened
0: so that's I, I'll, I'll leave it I'll leave the details of that you know uh, you know uh, uh, just kind of uh, in the background I'll, I think the point that I'm making and, and that, that I think Bill burns as, as something that he has to tackle is that there is a strange phenomena that happens in CIA that even the most accomplished officers, when they leave, uh, often don't leave with a good taste in their mouth. Um, you know, we call the, the the retired CIA officer cadre, you know, called the former's. But there's a but, but there's there's a strange pattern of, of leaving in less than than you know kind of gracious terms, and that doesn't need to be that way. Um, you know, it's it's you know there's the old adage that you can't love the job because you know, it won't love you back. But CIA was not, not just a job. I mean, it's not a nine to five job. It is all encompassing where, you know, you are you are tasked to go do very unique things, but your families are involved together. Um, it's pretty extraordinary. And so I think there's a way we can do things better. And so one of the things that I have certainly have called for publicly is is a different approach to what we call the formers in that, you know, people don't have to leave disgruntled or angry. Um, you have to leave with your head held high and celebrated. And I think one of the things that's going to happen with Charlie is we'll finally celebrate him. At, um, uh, at a ceremony at headquarters whenever COVID ends. It's something that, that I think a lot of us pushed for, and I'm glad that the, the, you know, the leadership there is a, has agreed to do this.
1: Yeah, in the news business, it used to be said, at least in old-fashioned newsrooms, that the news business will always disappoint you. Is this something about the CIA, or is it about intelligence work that you end up, uh, at the end of your career,
0: uh, <laughs> leaving with a sour taste in your mouth? I think, you know, John le Carre would appreciate that. I mean, you know, there's, you know, the, the, I, I don't know, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, I will say that you brought something up really interesting because the, uh, and it's, it's maybe a bit of a, a, a tangent on, but I always, I, what I found in my career as a former now, is I've, as I've become more active writing and, and meeting journalists, uh, Jeff, like yourself, who I've really, you know, I've really related to it and become my friends is the parallels between life as a case officer and life as a journalist are extraordinary. You know, I I had an amazing conversation recently um, uh, with uh, with a pretty, pretty uh, famous uh, foreign correspondent Um, and when we talked about this in in great detail. And so if you look at, you know, those who cover the conflicts and, you know, when, when you're talking about whether it's from Vietnam to Afghanistan to Iraq to Syria, what does a journalist do? A journalist cultivates sources who a lot of times they have to protect for their own safety. What does a journalist do? A journalist sees things that others won't see, you know, covers kind of the dark part of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and you have this fundamental desire to tell the truth. And, and if you walk into CIA headquarters, on the right is our famous, you know, the, the stars, is a memorial. wall. on the left is a biblical verse where it says, uh, 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 you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Um, the, the parallels between the two, the two professions, I think, are really profound. Uh and so, you know, I, I would I would only argue that just as you said if, if journalists are leaving their profession at the end of the career a little disgruntled, it doesn't have to be that way. Same thing, same thing with the uh with the CIA. We have to celebrate people who really, you know, put a lot and uh into it because I you know, it's 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 certainly not a 9 to 5 job.
1: Well, let's talk about speaking truth to power. How was uh what was Charlie's position on the US invasion of Iraq? Was that something oh, he was well, that's uh, a
0: great question. So, so I you know, uh Charlie was an expert on Iraq, Um, and and one of the things and 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 as uh, he was a mentor of mine, uh, you know I became immersed in as as a junior officer immersed in Iraqi operations. And so over the years he pulled me into this. And as fact is, we were putting the team together that went into um, Baghdad, which specifically for the high value target hunt, remember the the deck of fifty five, the Iraqi regime figure. So he I was one of the case officers, um, and the case officer chosen to go with him, and it was a great honor. But I'll tell you, as, as we were going through the city, and I allude to it a bit in my piece, and I think the best person, the, the, best, the best account I can tell you about is Robert Draper's recent book on the Iraq War and, and the failings of the Bush administration. Is that Charlie, uh, uh, while he might have been a proponent in bringing down Saddam, certainly was not a proponent and did not advise doing things such as disbanding the entire Iraqi military or firing the Bath Party or things, the, really the catastrophic mistakes. In fact, him and I, you know, uh, uh, certainly were, were inst- interested in trying to reconstitute an Iraqi government made up of technocrats. You know, you had you had the individuals within the regime of Saddam Hussein certainly committed war crimes, but you couldn't fire the entire government or the entire military. And so I think and, I, and as, I, as I look at back at my discussions with Charlie just personally, I think he was he was dismayed on what occurred. Um, and, and that's an argument that I'm comfortable with having, having you know, uh, participated really in, in, in the events in Iraq is that not necessarily that are, you know, clearly the whole issue of the weapons of mass destruction and the intel failure. That's not for one for myself as uh, I wasn't involved in that. And it's, perhaps it's a cop out saying it, but I wasn't. But I'm talking about as we went in and trying to do the right thing as uh, after we entered the uh, after the invasion. Um, boy, the United States made terrible mistakes, but they didn't. You know, the, the Bush administration. And the neocons, um, who really kind of drove policy, did not listen to Charlie, and I think that it was it was to, to uh, really negative effect.
1: Let's talk about him again as the last uh, great Arabist. Um, you can't bake up instant Arabists, so. Uh, even though we will we both grant that there's a need for CIA generalists in the field, somebody who can take his skills from the Middle East to, to Latin America or or wherever. Right. Uh, well first of all, do you think this uh, problem has infected also uh, the East Asia division uh, used to be full of China many years ago. It was full of China experts, Vietnam experts, people who had lived in, uh, lived in the region, worked on the region for years and years and years. Uh, they seem to be gone now. So this is across the board, not just in the Middle East, but in uh, other regions where we just aren't developing or uh, giving license to people to pursue a career
0: in that specialty of, the, of that region. Right. So, so I think you have to move away from what, what, I, what I called before is this, this phenomenon of becoming a generalist. Of, of, you know, if you learn a language, you go serve in a region, mm-hmm. you're really smart and you're serving in Cairo and then your next assignment's in Paraguay. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Um, or or it, it makes some sense in that maybe you want to take a break. Um, but, you, but but, but again, the focus on that region, it's just not there. And I think we have to get back to that. And it's not difficult. It's just a change in mindset once again. Um, uh, and, and so uh, it, it's just a matter of, of, you know, the intelligence community leadership understanding that this is what you have to do again you can train someone you know we go through a two-year Arabic program got it that and so I you can put a lot of officers you know who have who have you know very functional Arabic on the ground but again it's not it's not having 10-15 years in the region in multiple countries and multiple different parts of uh, of the Arab world so to me this is not a terribly difficult fix it's just going to take uh you know take a different mindset and and, you know, there's there's a theory that, that a lot of people subscribe to that you have to come back to headquarters for a substantial amount of time to become this kind of all-encompassing, you know, uh, uh, intelligence officer. Um, perhaps you don't need to do that for everybody. You know, again, Charlie never served a day in Washington. And so, uh, sure, maybe you come home for a tour or two, but certainly, but, you know, you don't have to spend half your career uh, overseas and half in, in Washington. When you sign up for kind of the Secret Service, Silent Service, the agency, you know, I think a lot of people do so hoping they're going to spend the next twenty years living in a region. Um, I have a feeling.
1: Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I have a feeling that Bill Burns will be sympathetic to this argument, uh, but will there be will there be institutional resistance to this idea of encouraging
0: specialization again? Jeff, there's institutional re- resistance when I want to change the the you know the the. Type of food at the cafeteria. <laughs> I mean, come on, it's, it's a giant bureaucracy. So sure, there might be, and, and people can make some some you know some some cogent arguments on why you do need to kind of uh, uh, have have a broader scope. But I think, but you know, there, I think when you look at the the risk versus gain, um, you know, we have to go back uh, uh, to that. But you know, the 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 idea of bureaucratic resistance, sure, there's bureaucratic resistance. Um, when you try to do anything new, look. Here's the bottom line, and and I, and I and I as I think and I talk about intelligence, and there's there's so many interesting things to talk about. You know, the open source world. You know, what are the Bell the firms like Bell and Cat doing? Um the, the you know with artificial inter- intelligence and open source. You know, we have to the CIA has to justify, and and there's a good reason to do so. We have to justify our existence. There's no doubt about it. Um, uh, and there is secret information to steal, and that's what we do, and we do well. But here's the bottom line: is you know, and, and I remember talking to a former director on this. Can you tell me, Jeff, uh, uh, what Syrian President Bashar al-Assad is thinking this morning? And, and, I can, and you can go down that, whether it's, you know, Russian President Putin, um, uh, uh, the Egyptian leadership. A lot of times we can't answer that in the affirmative. And if we can't answer that in affirmative, we have to rethink the way we're doing things. Absolutely. Uh, and, 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 and that's OK to do that. And as, a, as, a, as a someone, look, and you know me, I mean, I'm, I, I speak and talk about intelligence matters. I'm a, I'm a critic sometimes of the way we do things, but I love the organization and I love the profession and I just want to see the place get better. Uh, uh, but we have to be able to answer that question. Um, and sometimes we can't. And so, we, you know, and so so maybe kind of bring back the, the Charlie Seidels of the world uh, will allow us to do so.
1: Sometimes people forget that this is a life and death issue. Uh, we can't afford to have CIA leadership uh, succumb to political wins and go along with a disastrous step like invading Iraq uh, which it'll be decades before that situation uh, leavens to a degree that it's not really hurting us and it may never happen. Um, so how can we, uh, how can, is there a way that we can feel confident about the CIA uh, holding firm on its intelligence? There were a lot of people who, who. Uh, were opposed to the invasion of Iraq at CIA, and yet CIA went along with that. CIA has done that in the past in regard to Vietnam, and other questions. Um, these are disastrous mistakes. We're paying the intelligence community how many billions of dollars? Too many to count uh, to get this stuff right and to keep our political leaders on on a short leash. So what's the outlook for you in terms of a revitalized cia really being able to tell it straight to the president and others in these administrations
0: so, so I, I actually i actually do have a positive outlook so and, and i'll tell you that the cia has made mistakes and the cia also has a tremendous successes that we don't hear about and i know that's that's you know that's that's easy to say but as, as someone who's you know if, if you come to my house and you go down to my basement and you see all the kind of the, the you know the the stuff on the wall of front page articles of the New York Times, these are operations that I ran that I can't talk about. So um, when I say trust me, you know, that's <laughs> I just but but look, you make a good point. We have to learn from our errors. And and you know, the the uh, uh, and and it's I'm not gonna just kind of blame it on the analyst about the analytic call of, of WMD because it certainly was a collection issue as well. Um, but but we have learned from that. And 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 I'll tell you that I was I had not retired yet. Um, I was still in my seat as I was the acting operations chief, first the deputy and the acting operations chief over Europe and Eurasia, as as just as the Trump administration uh, uh, took power. And so I saw the drafting and the fights and, and, of course, the political fights over the intelligence community assessment on Russian interference. And I'll tell you, Jeff, that that document was the gold standard of analysis. Um, and, and, you know, and, and the CIA stood really firm, even in the face of really strong attacks by the Trump administration against it. So I think we've come a long way, you know, there's, because we can't be wrong on, on something that important. We shouldn't have been wrong on a rock WMD. You know, we learned from it. There are a lot of, you know, uh, reforms that are put in place. The CIA is going to get some calls wrong. That's just the nature of the business. Um, but I, but I, you know, if you, if you want to go kind of to the next big analytic call, which was Russian interference, the CIA nailed it. Uh, no doubt about it, and they stood by it. And you know, and 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 Gina Haspel, who I, who obviously I, you know, I have some, I, I you know her, her and I have not always seen eye to eye on certain things, um, but she, I, I, I really credit her for standing firm um, uh, in the face of really strong attacks against the intelligence community from the from the Trump administration. So you know we we're going to learn, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to learn. Um, uh, I know the, you know, that, that the men and women who are there at the agency are, are, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, great patriotic Americans. Um, I will tell you, and maybe just to close this segment, you know, after 9, and, and so I, you know, I focused on, on the, on the Middle East, but really one of my special teasers on counterterrorism. And I'll tell you after September 11th, there was a, a palpable feeling, uh, especially amongst counterterrorism personnel that we had failed. Um and you know it, it's it's kind of trite or maybe it's simplistic to say how bad we felt, but we really did. Uh you know, th- there certainly were warnings about Osama bin Laden, but the idea that we did not stop that attack was was taken personally uh by everyone. And and, and these are good people there, and so you know, uh you just kind of you, you kind of you know, you you reform, you 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 kind of pull up your bootstraps and, and you go back at it. But I'm feeling you know much better now in terms of just on our processes. Um, certainly than I did in the Iraq WMD uh, you know, fiasco.
1: While we're on that subject, um, do you think that uh, the uh, most potent terrorist groups around now, ISIS and its affiliates and so on, have the ability to mount a 911 uh, style attack again uh, on this country?
0: Sure. So if, for me to say no would be would be incorrect because, you know, no intelligence officer is going to say that. I think the United States has spent trillions after 9/11, and you can say we've bankrupted our country and we've taken our ball off our targets such as Russia and China. But the bottom line is we did not allow for another attack to occur, and that's a credit to the men and women of the intelligence community. Um, uh, but but you know there there you know there the the world is 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 made up of some some bad actors, and there will be individuals who are seeking to uh, to uh, to hurt us. So it's entirely possible. So I think. The, you know, the, I think one of the, the the real question is as we make that pivot to to, to China, Russia, to hard targets, and we have to, um, because there's no doubt that with the focus on counterterrorism, you know, we took our eye off the ball, uh, and I'm as guilty as that as anybody else. Um, but we can't forget that that we're still in the CT fight, and we do have to, uh, you know, allocate resources and keep our our partnerships up, partnerships up with the U.S. military and really with our allies overseas. The intelligence the liaison relationships have been critical around the world in stopping attacks against Americans and our allies. So, you know, I guess the short answer is sure that there's still gonna be people out there to do us harm, but we've done a lot to degrade kind of the core groups that were that were seeking these kind of these mass casualty attacks.
1: Um, it seems to me that ISIS is metamorphosizing in uh, Africa quite rapidly. Uh, that seem, that's That's quite worrisome,
0: don't you think? Yeah, sure. So, so I think that, and, and there's worrisome for two reasons. One is ungoverned spaces is the enemy of, or, or is, or, or is, is, is what exactly what is uh, what terrorist groups will gravitate towards. So, just like Afghanistan was like that, um, you know, in the in the uh, you know the Taliban years, where Al Qaeda was able to use that as the base. Um, ungoverned spaces of Africa certainly are attractive to terrorist groups. There is a debate, and it's a it's a legitimate one on on are these groups you know more of a threat regionally or are they going to come after us in the United States? Um, you can have you know a lot of discussions on that because we do put a lot of time and money and effort and resources, and there's been American bloodshed in in, in, in the CT fight in Africa. I think one of my worries is that we're going to take our ball off our eye off the ball in Africa so much in the pivot to hard targets, um, but it's gonna it's gonna be a fight over resources, and you see this played out. The U.S. military is kind of struggling what to do um, you know, in terms of their deployments with AFRICOM and, and, and the CT fight and same thing with, with CIA, you know, there is, a, we have a, there's a finite, uh, uh number of resources. Uh, uh, I think there was a, there's an article today in the New York times or yesterday about US special forces teams in Mozambique. And so, you know, it's, it's, this is, this is going to be a really interesting dilemma, um, uh, for us. I would argue that we can do both. Uh, we just have to do it smartly. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, uh, uh but by, but, but a total shift to hard targets and, and, neglecting CT is going to come back to haunt us. We don't want to do that.
1: Yeah. Uh, And it seems to me, again, this is where uh, expertise, area expertise, language, cultural expertise is really paramount. Um, If Bill Burns pushed a button tomorrow, counting on him actually arriving at CIA in the near future, (laughs) if he pushed a button tomorrow and say, I want experts, I want to grow experts, how long is that going to take? Five years, 10 years.
0: So, so it's, well, it's, I think there's, it's, it's, it's several, several things. One is, you know, it's, it's the pipeline in. So, okay. We bring a new, new operations officer in, we have to give them language training and then get them out in the field. So, you know, so how long does it take to have someone and, you you know, you know, as, as, as you have experience in this, you know, you knew what you were doing the day you left the country. Um, So it's going to take maybe a tour or two or three before case officers really kind of operationally sharp. Um and spot on, maybe two tours, you know, we'll see. So so it's going to take a number of years, but you could also bring back, you know, there are plenty of Middle Eastern uh, uh, specialists or Africa experts, perhaps as part of this generalist strategy, they're not in their, their old home office. Maybe you bring them back. Um, there's also all sorts of other novel ways of doing things. And this is, trust me, this is not a plea for me because I'm I'm happily retired in Northern Virginia. I'm not going anywhere, but there's a lot of former intel officers out there who you, you could bring back? You know, we put put a lot of people back on contract. Um, you could bring them back into the fold. You know, uh, as a as a stopgap measure. So there's there's certainly ways to do this, but you're right. It's just not pushing a button. It's going to take it's going to take some time. I, I will say this, and 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 you know, I remember walking the halls of any division. When and this is the nearest division. That's that's kind of the legendary, uh, at least in my mind. You know, the the, the legendary landing spot of Arabists such as, as Charlie it was, it was a, there was a culture there, there was a camaraderie, there was a feeling of belonging. Um, I don't, I, I didn't feel that when I left. And, and that's because there was kind of everyone kind of scattered. And there was this, you know, uh, a view of, of, of producing generalists and to go going back to that culture um, of, of having that kind of, you know, family together um, of expertise in a certain region, I think is, uh, is something that we should really do.
1: By the time you left, the family of experts had scattered.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I'd say that, you know, that we just didn't have that, you know, that that uh, uh, that that deep bench um, because everyone was off. And, you know, every, you know, so you do your tour in the Middle East and you go to a tour in Europe, you do something on in counterterrorism, maybe counterproliferation. Um, while in the past, you'd have just stuck and done three or four tours directly in that region. And um, we can these, assume. Sorry, go and, ahead.
1: And we can assume the same for China, which is yeah. emerging, yeah. has emerged as our biggest.
0: Overall, global challenge, and and and, I, and it's not to say so. So it's simplistic when people say we don't have any people who speak the language. We do; they just might be in serving somewhere else right now. You know, so so there, it's it's just a mind. Sh- it's it's a, it's a shift in mindset on how we deploy our personnel. Um, uh, you know, the, but there's no way Charlie Seidel, the, those those type of folks exist anymore now. Um, and so I think that's a, you know, and that that's to our de- that's to our detriment. Um, I'll, I'll I'll tell you that you know if you take a look there's there's some great examples of of you know uh, uh, situations in which look look, look, at, look at the situation in Jordan where we had King Hussein a great uh, US ally and then King Abdullah becomes you know uh, you know uh, when King Hussein dies King Abdullah becomes uh, becomes king um, and and is you know is relatively young uh, uh, at this time you know officers who uh, you know who who uh, you know serve in the region who served uh, uh, in Jordan, perhaps under King Hussein? You know, think about the the impact they would have um, with, with these with these rulers. And this is, you know, I'm not making a I'm not making a plug for for you know the aristocracy of monarchies. But these, but, but you know, why wouldn't you want to keep people with relationships like this um, uh, over the years? Same thing if it was, in, you know, uh, uh, in Egypt or same thing in, in, in certainly in, in Saudi Arabia. One can make an argument even that if we had better expertise. In Saudi Arabia, you know the 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 you know we, we'd have better luck with the than the craziness of Mohammed bin Salman and and what MBS has done there, um uh you know and, and this is this is you know the the you don't you wouldn't have the Jared Kushner's of the world on WhatsApp, you know encouraging this this uh, you know young neophyte who has kind of taken Saudi Arabia you know, uh, you know many steps backwards, um uh and so you know bringing back that kind of expertise I think in the long run is just smart. Well, with that, we'll leave it.
1: Mark, uh, great to talk to you. Thanks very much for participating in Spy Talk. I've been talking with Mark Polymaropoulos, a 28-year veteran of the CIA clandestine service, most of it spent in the Middle East. For more provocative interviews like this, visit our Spy Talk page on Substack. You can easily find it via Google. And tune in to any of our other weekly installments of the Spy Talk podcast here or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jeff Stein. See you around.
0: For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.